1: Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy. This week, we're asking what's the greatest threat to democracy? In the second half of the 20th century, a host of new democracies were born in Africa, in Asia with decolonisation, in Eastern Europe after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and following the fall of autocrats in Spain, Brazil, and Chile, to name but a few. But the latest Economist Intelligence Unit's Democracy Index suggests that global democracy is in sharp decline. It concludes that less than 5% of the world's population currently lives in a full democracy. Nearly a third live under authoritarian rule, with a large share of those in China. Overall, 89 of the 167 countries assessed in 2017 received lower scores than they had the year before civil liberties are being widely challenged through undermining free and fair elections, the repression of opposition, silencing the media and even violence. Democracies can die dramatic deaths after a coup, but a new book, How Democracies Die, argues that a slower sickness is to blame for the current threats to democracy, the slow erosion of vital norms of behaviour. Its authors, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, are both professors of government at Harvard University. They write that the symptoms of decline are visible at the heart of a former champion of global democracy, America.
0: You know, it's interesting. Every time I mention her, everyone screams, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. They keep screaming. And you know what I do? I've been nice. But after watching that performance last night, such lies, I don't have to be so nice anymore. I'm taking the gloves off, right? Yes? Take the gloves off. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake. Phony. Fake. (laughs) A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people. There may be somebody with tomatoes in the audience. So if you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. Okay? Just knock the hell. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees. I promise. I promise. They won't be so much because the courts agree with us too. What's going on in this country?
1: But is the death of the democratic ideal a real threat or more the projection of worries and aversions about the direction of politics? Stephen Levitsky joins me on the line from Harvard now. Welcome, Stephen, to The Economist Asks.
2: Hi. Thanks for having
1: me. So give us an overview, if you could... When you say how democracies die, what are the key indicators here that the norms that you have to count up or the norms that you think we have to take very seriously when they're eroded?
2: First of all, democracies can die, as you pointed out, in a number of different ways. And during the Cold War in particular, the the most common form of death was uh, at the hands of men with guns, sort of classic military coups. Those still happen occasionally. There was one in, in Egypt, another one in Thailand and in within the last five years, but they're much less common. Now the predominant form of death is at the hands of elected leaders, elected prime ministers or presidents who use the very institutions of democracy uh, to undermine it, to go after opposition, to eviscerate civil liberties, and eventually to skew the playing field against opponents. Um, that is not the only way that democracies die today, but it is the predominant one.
1: So let's have a couple of examples of that kind of demise of democracy. What countries are you thinking of there?
2: Sure. In recent years, uh, common examples are Venezuela. Hugo uh, Chavez was freely elected uh, during the first few years of his presidency in the early 2000s. The regime was largely democratic. Opposition was tolerated. There was a vibrant opposition media. Uh, but slowly, the democratic features of the regime were eviscerated. Turkey is another example. It doesn't have as long... A democratic uh, history is is Venezuela, but the AKP government was elected freely in 2002, governed pretty democratically for the first five, six, seven years. But the regime has slid over the last decade, certainly into a much more authoritarian regime. Hungary is a little uh, less authoritarian than the two cases I just mentioned, but has followed a similar path under the, the government of Viktor Orban. So those are three recent cases.
1: You identify four criteria. For would would-be authoritarians or people who would then come into your category. Uh, And I think you conclude that the the American president, currently Donald Trump, uh, meets them all. So run us quickly through the the criteria and and then we could dig into whether that's a fair description of Donald Trump and his impact.
2: Sure. Keep in mind, these four criteria are used to identify a potential autocrat before he or she comes to power. This is behaviour of politicians before running for office or during the campaign that might set off warning signs that citizens and politicians, and particularly political parties, should take seriously before nominating a politician. These criteria are essentially a, a kind of a litmus test to try to figure out before these guys are elected or nominated whether they have authoritarian tendencies, because it's a lot easier to stop an authoritarian before they come to office
1: so come on then what so, should we be looking so out for
2: the four are and these draw very heavily from the renowned political scientist Juan Linz, who's a, a Spanish political scientist who taught for many years at Yale and he devoted his career to studying uh, the demise of democracies and uh, so the four are a weak commitment to democratic rules of the game and unwillingness to play by democratic rules of the game that's one the second one is denial of the legitimacy of your opponents the third is a um, toleration or encouragement of violence. And the fourth one is a willingness to curtail the civil liberties of your opponents, including the press. And yes, we argue that during the 2016 campaign or 2015-16 campaign, Donald Trump, unfortunately, ticked off all the boxes.
1: That's challengeable, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I come, you know, a, everyone brings their background to this. I come as someone who covered East Germany, the Soviet Union and the Balkans and uh, the collapse of, of Yugoslavia, but had quite a lot of contact along the way with seriously authoritarian states. And as difficult, as disruptive and often unpleasant as Donald Trump might be, I, I would suggest that on if you look at something like, you know, your point on media freedoms or indeed the use of violence or state violence, he's, he's falling short of... Of passing that test other than rhetorically which can be disturbing and can be very disagreeable but let me make two points
2: first of all again these were four criteria that we applied to politicians before they take office if you want to challenge me on whether Donald Trump did not meet those four Mm. criteria before he took office we can talk about that but that was the first point this is an early chapter in the book when we talk about the selection of candidates and whether or not authoritarian figures are allowed near the seat of power. And we could have a discussion about what Trump has done in office. We conclude in the book that over the first year, the U.S.'s democratic institutions remained intact, that it did not cross any sort of line into authoritarianism. But I, th- I would take issue with the with the point that I think you're trying to make, which is that Donald Trump is just all talk, all bluster. I think there are three ways in which that bluster can be incredibly damaging. One of them is that it it's very often, and you see this in, in a number of other cases, triggers a... Um, Counterreaction on the part of the media, the opposition, that eventually reinforces and accelerates this process of norm erosion. So uh, I take Alberto Fujimori in Peru, was an outsider like Donald Trump, did not have any kind of an authoritarian project, much like Trump, came into office as a populist, as someone who used a lot of bluster in attacking the, the elites and the establishment and the media, and he scared the bejesus out of the establishment. And the establishment understandably pushed back.
1: It it seems to me that if you signal any sort of disruption or sort of rudeness, which I'm not putting up in any sense as a defense of trumpery here, but I'm only pointing out that on your definition, if I, you know, shout and jump up and down and say some disturbing things when running for office. Do you consider the
2: promotion of violence
1: Let me finish the point. This is
2: much more than rudeness.
1: Well, the promotion of violence in what sense?
2: Encouraging violence at, at at campaign rallies, saying I will pay your lawyers' bills if you beat up this this protester. In the good old days, protesters were carried out on stretchers. That's an advocacy of violence. That's the kind of thing that we saw in Uruguay and Chile and, and, and uh, in Brazil and prior to the 1964
1: coup. So the, that's the... not
2: that's something we've never heard. From major party candidates in the United States in the last century.
1: Indeed, yeah, indeed. He uses language in a way that is more disturbing and is completely distinctive. But I'm trying to make a to draw, you know, draw out where that crosses into being potential to be an authoritarian, as opposed to having the potential, the willingness, the appetite to shock, and also to motivate the base, and yes, to pick a fight with liberals.
2: Okay, so here are my three points. One is very often looking at other cases. This kind of talk leads to an escalation of confrontation that very often leads to a democratic crisis. Secondly, one thing that concerns me a lot is that this talk, this bluster that you seem not too concerned about, I am is concerned eroding, about. Well, let is, let me finish, Professor. Don't put, no, no, don't, put, don't put
1: words into my mouth. I am concerned okay. about it, but I'm merely okay. asking how it fits. Does it fit into the authoritarian? So direction that you were trying to establish?
2: Two core democratic institutions, right? The electoral process and the free press. One of the things that Trump's bluster has done is seriously erode public confidence in those two institutions, right? It's hard to think of an institution more core to our democracy than our elections. Trump both as candidate and as president has repeatedly told the public that our electoral process is rigged, that the elections are not fair, that they're they're fraudulent, which is an outright lie. And, as, and you see in public opinion polls, particularly among Republicans, that confidence in our electoral process has plummeted. A very large number, particularly of Republican citizens, now believe that our elections are not free and fair. Secondly, the press. Donald Trump has repeatedly said as candidate, but particularly as president, that the, pre- that the press, that the mainstream press, is inventing things in an effort to conspire to bring him down. And a very large number of Americans now believe that the mainstream media is not playing fair. is conspiring against Trump. And more importantly, more worrisome, Mm. particularly worrisome for me, are beginning, surveys are showing, beginning to grow more tolerant or more supportive of government measures to punish media that lie or are inaccurate. To me, as a libertarian, that's terrifying.
1: There have been other administrations who had conspiracy theories have they not about the media yeah but
2: not nearly as public so so you know Nixon hated the press he despised the press he conspired against the press but rarely did he engage in this kind of very public assault on the institution of the press
1: let's talk about democracy as it's practiced through through the electoral process does there have to be a threat to elections and to free and fair elections for democracies to be coming under pressure in the way you know that you can actually talk about them being endangered or use the word "die" about them.
2: There are many ways to die, and there are some regimes in which elections are completely fair, free and fair, and the problem really is not there, but rather a very popular president or prime minister or party. To th- thinking about uh, Turkey and Hungary, um, use their legitimate, freely and fairly elected parliamentary majorities. Uh, to crush the opposition, to often, in a, in a, in a fairly subtle way these days, mm. eviscerate key norms or rules that protect minorities, that protect the opposition, that protect the, the press. So it can be that the death of democracy or the weakening of democracy, because I wouldn't say that Hungarian democracy has died entirely, takes place outside the electoral process. In other cases, it happens in the electoral process. Elections get less fair, and there are lots of ways to do that, right? In, in the United States, the primary way in which elections have grown unfair has been through the restriction of suffrage. Mm-hmm. So we had a, an extraordinary democratizing moment in the aftermath of the Civil War uh, under Reconstruction, after which in uh, about 10 Southern states, the suffrage of African Americans was systematically stripped away, and which allowed, because African Americans were Republican voters, allowed the Democratic Party in nine or 10 states in the South to establish single party authoritarian rule for nearly a century. Now, nothing remotely like that is happening today. But the primary way or a primary way that in which the Republican Party, which is facing is sort of the way it is constituted as a primarily white Protestant party, is facing a real medium term electoral threat. And its reaction has been to make it harder to register and vote and to make it harder to register and vote for primarily low income and minority voters who, guess what, vote
1: Democrat. But is there a tension between that kind of diversity of the society and the functioning smooth machinery of the every four years democracy?
2: Unfortunately, there is. Professor Zibilat and I uh, spend a lot of time talking about the norms of what we call mutual toleration and forbearance, which is restraint in the exercise of one's institutional prerogatives, how that helped to sustain the American political system from about the 1880s through the late 20th century. We had a little more than a century of quite a bit of political stability and functioning constitutional order. One of the things that those norms rested on was the decision by the Republican Party after Reconstruction to abandon racial equality, to basically re-exclude African Americans from the political arena, particularly in the South. So both parties, beginning in the, in the 1880s all the way through the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, Both parties were overwhelmingly white and reluctant to take up the issue of racial equality, and that was one of the things that allowed the two parties to not see one another as threats, to tolerate one one another, and effectively to play nice. That begins to change with the Voting Rights Act, and with at simultaneously, with large-scale immigration starting in the 1960s. This society becomes much more diverse, and that initiates a process of partisan polarization that is cutting away at our norms. So the great challenge is is reestablishing or shoring up our democratic norms in a context of, what, of one of the world's first multi-ethnic democracies. That's a hard thing to do.
1: When you talk about uh, shoring up democratic norms, it almost sounds like there is a—you know—democracy is a, a kind of citadel. You can imagine a, the Greeks having some marvelous metaphor for this. You know, it, it, it's a sort of—I suppose it's, a, the, it's the shining city on the hill—is drawn from it. And yet, there is an argument, isn't there? And I think you see it uh, both on the left, in someone like Cory Robbins, uh, writing an academic in, in this debate, but also on the more disruptive right of, of politics. And you think of the. Brexit debate in Britain, which is that democracy is really constantly being eroded. It throws up norms of hierarchy and domination of particular ideas, and then it knocks them down again. That is its strength. So should we expect it to look particularly stable?
2: Look, separate one, policy, which is always changing, and always up for grabs. Two, Other norms, societal norms, which may have to do with with the kind of racial or or gender hierarchies that Corey Robin likes to talk about, and, and separate those things which, yes, constantly are disrupted and constantly should be disrupted from two basic norms that we're focused on, and that is mutual toleration that the major political parties, whoever they are, need to accept one another as legitimate under any circumstance. The, the the norms governing race and gender and sexuality may be completely up in the air economic policy can be up in the air. I don't care. The major political parties, the major competing political forces must tolerate one another's existence. and the other is forbearance is the is, is the use of restraint in the exercise of one's political power. Anybody who studied the the demise of democracy, whether it be, in Brazil or Chile or Turkey or Venezuela or Spain in the 30s or Germany in the 30s knows that without a, a shared commitment to restraint in the exercise of power again no matter what other norms are in flux you cannot d- democracy can't can survive so adherence to these two basic norms it's a conservative notion it is a conservative notion that 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 our critics on the left you know legitimately question Daniel and I happen to believe that what we had in the United States post-1965, which was an embryonic experiment in multiracial, multiethnic democracy, is a really hard thing to do and is very much worth preserving. And that taking it for granted or, or saying that even core norms uh, uh, that, that we know from the study of other regimes are critical to preserving a liberal democracy, that throwing them up in it for grabs is a dangerous thing to do. I think it's reckless.
1: And when you look at the sort of slight Trump light that we've seen at Davos uh, last week, where some of us were listening to him at Davos last week, and the definite nuancing, do you think, and I mean, in no sense that it would uh, change the mind of anyone uh, who thinks that that Donald Trump is a menace, but do you think, well, this is kind of good because the office is softening exactly what you objected to before, that words do matter and words can cause harm, or do you think you need to be even more cautious here because it may be that real intent is now just being better hidden. And he's just hired better spin doctors or decided to go for a different speech strategy.
2: Look, we've we've been watching Trump in the presidency for a year now. And, you know, we, we know there are days where he follows the script and there are days when he doesn't follow the script. Donald Trump is who he is. And we're beginning to learn many of his limitations, which is a very good thing. So sure, it's great that, they, that the institution of the presidency imposes itself. It's, uh, I, I cheer every time I see Donald Trump constrained. But our argument is that the problem runs deeper than Trump. It is a problem that we in the United States elected a demagogue as a president, somebody who, who is demonstrably weak in his commitment to democratic norms. But the real problem is that what we call the, the soft guardrails that have long protected our democracy, are now much weaker than they were 30 or 40 years ago.
1: So what should we do? And this is the bit where the poor guest gets put on the spot and, and told to provide the magic medicine. Exactly. Well, you will write these books, guys. You know. So how democracies die, what do alert citizens do to make that less likely?
2: Well, look, I'll begin, and this will not be satisfying, by talking about what, the, what uh, democratic citizens, with a big D, Demo- uh, opponents of Trump, Should not do. There's a lot of discussion in progressive circles, in Democratic Party circles these days about learning how to fight like Republicans. That it's essential that we respond to uh, abuse, abuse like the uh, the, essentially the theft of a Supreme Court seat in 2016, by hitting back, by by using the same tactics. Otherwise, the argument is Democrats will suffer a series, an endless series, of sucker punches. And so there's talk, for example, if the Democrats re- regain control of the Senate, which is a possibility, uh, that they would deny Donald Trump the right to fill the next Supreme Court vacancy. We think that's a terrible idea. All it will do is reinforce and accelerate the process of norm erosion such that when the next time the Democrats have a president, he or she will be subject to equal or, or, or worse barrage of attacks. What the, the democracy that, will, that Democrats will inherit will be a mess. What Republicans need to do in the medium term is become a a more diverse political party. The United States of America is a diverse society, and uh, no matter what solution to the immigration problem the parties eventually converge upon, it is going to continue to be a diverse society with an increasing level of racial equality. And as long as the Republican Party remains a overwhelmingly white and Christian party, it will be prone to white nationalism and extremism, which is extremely polarizing. What can citizens do? I mean, we, all of us need to do this where we enter sort of fantasy land. But um,
1: I think we can indulge at this point. The divide
2: between blue state citizens who live in Cambridge or Brookline, Massachusetts, like me, and Trump voters is extraordinarily vast. And it's not easy to cross that. There's there's a a big geographic divide in addition to cultural and, and ideological and partisan divide. But I think we all need to take steps to begin to dilute that. So here in universities, I think it's essential that we do a better job of inviting red state speakers or conservative speakers, not just sort of Mitt Romney types who, you know, have governed blue states and, and get along well in in the Harvard crowd, but those who don't, those who are culturally really very different.
1: So give us an idea. Who might you like to invite to Harvard who might signal that readiness to cross the divide?
2: Why not Sarah Palin? She may be a political figure in, in decline, but the former vice presidential candidate. She'd be a, a, a great person to bring. Newt Gingrich is not uh, not a popular guy in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but he's a smart, interesting guy. We should bring him.
1: Well, pretty, when you do that, will stage. you invite us along?
2: Happy to, of course.
1: Very good. Well, Sarah, Newt, your invitations uh, are in the post. Stephen Levitsky, thank you very much.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So what do you think? We want to hear your thoughts on the threats to democracy and what might its remedies look like. We're on email at radio at or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Do get in touch. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist.